Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Cognitive Dissidents. As usual, I'm your host. I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm the director of geopolitical analysis at Cognitive Investments. Uh, joining me for our weekly conversation on geopolitics and markets. Very market heavy this week based on everything that's been going on in markets, if you haven't been following, is uh, Rob Larity, who's our founder and chief investment officer. Um, other than that, please leave us a rating or please review the podcast. It helps us immensely. You can write to us about the podcast at jacob at cognitive.investments. Any questions, comments, concerns, nothing is too small. Um, always love to hear from you. So without further ado, here's Rob and I chatting about the week. Cheers, and we will see you out there. Take care. Cognitive Investments LLC is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Cognitive and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. For additional information, please visit our website at www.cognitive.investments. The information provided is for educational and informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice and it should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security. It does not take into account any investor's particular investment objectives, strategies, tax status, or investment horizon. You should consult your attorney or tax advisor. All right, Thursday afternoon. It's really hot in New Orleans, Rob. I assume it's, is it still nice in, in Cambridge or are things hot there as well? Oh, it's beautiful. I think we're the only part of the country where it's not uh, an oven right now, from what I hear. Well, I hope you enjoy these these two weeks where it's actually nice to live in the Boston area. So uh, here in here in New Orleans, it's 105 heat index, and <laughs> we're def- definitely sweltering through. Um, how about this for a really heavy-handed transition? Speaking of, of sweltering and sweating through something, uh, it has been a rough week for markets. And I was just telling you before we got on the podcast that uh, a lady was walking her dog outside the house this morning and asked me if she should pay off her house and move to Tahiti immediately because she was afraid of interest rates going through the roof. And probably, I, I don't want to be ageist here. She looked like she was around uh, when Volcker was hiking rates. I'll, I'll put it diplomatically that way. Um, so, but when, when you and I were, were sort of prepping for the podcast, Rob, I, I thought you were actually much more sober and a little bit more sanguine than I think most people are kind of... Um, are probably used to hearing right now. So why don't we start first with the Fed? Um, the Fed obviously hiked interest rates 75 basis points. So I think that takes us up to what, 1.5 to 1.75%, which is still not very high, but it was the largest hike since 1994. And when you are able to throw that into a newspaper article, people freak out. Um, but I think the interesting point you made to me was was about the credibility of the Fed and how it feels like maybe people are asleep at the wheel. So why, why don't you talk through a little bit about what you're seeing in terms of the Fed and why you think markets reacted so violently to, I mean, it's a sizable hike, but interest rates are still pretty low. It doesn't quite under, it, that by itself doesn't quite explain to me why markets had a seizure this week. So why do you think markets reacted so badly to the 75 basis point hike? Yeah. Um, I think there's a few elements here, and this is getting more into the negative interpretation, which I'm a little cautious of because I want to leave people with a more positive takeaway, which is how we're feeling. Um, and we're a little more sanguine than the consensus, which right now That's is fine. on Scare fire them jumping first. out of the window. <laughs> Scare them first, and then we will rescue them with the healing solves of your insight. Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> Well, even in fear and, and scary things, there's opportunity. And I think, you know, one of our, of course, we're speaking our own book here, but one of our larger exposures is in gold. And um, 
and has been for for some time now. And I think the takeaway from this week, as you said, it's not the size or the magnitude of the interest rate increase itself. It's, I think, the manner in which it was communicated. Because um, you have to remember, the Fed is supposed to be very boring. And especially in the last two or three Fed chairmen. You know, Alan Greenspan had a certain uh, theatricality to him. But then you had Ben Bernanke. Um, you had, um, uh, excuse me, um, the Treasury Secretary. I'm having a total brain fart right now. Today? Yes. <laughs> Janet, Janet. It's Janet Yellen, right? Yeah, Janet Yellen. Excuse me. You had Janet. You had Ben Bernanke. And these well, were very... To your point, Janet is not exactly memorable. <laughs> well, that's, yes, my point exactly. And these are very dry academic figures. Um, and they come from that world. And I think in many ways, that was the zeitgeist of the Fed for a very long time, which was this aura of institution uh, strength, of decision by consensus, of um, predictable... Uh, decision trees and decision functions. And, and they've said this many times in the past where they're trying to get people to understand how they're going to make decisions as far out as possible so that the volatility of the yield curve is as low as possible. Um, and the really interesting thing about the last week is not so much that it was 75 basis points. It was that the Fed had signaled pretty clearly heading into their quiet period when they can no longer speak anymore, that it was going to be 50 basis points. And then you had a CPI inflation print last week that was higher than expected, not off the charts, you know, not something that was, oh my God, raised the alarm bells, but higher. And they decided to reach out to the Wall Street Journal during the quiet period and basically say, hey, it's going to be 75 basis points pass it along. And that caused everyone to freak out. And if you look at what happened with two-year treasury yields and the front part of the yield curve, it was an absolute explosion. And I think a big part of that is the manner in which that was done. Because all of a sudden, the sort of plotting, institutional, academic, dry as dust approach to forward guidance and everything, which they had tried to maintain for a very long time, it's out the window. They're, they, they're not doing it anymore. And now it's, you know, practically, you know, they might as well be on Twitter, uh, throwing out Trump-like comments as far as the gravity with which some of these things are being taken. And, and obviously that's said for effect, but compared to the way they were before, this is coming out of left field. And that's scary. Um, I don't think market participants are really that worried about inflation per se. Like if you look at what actual investors and money managers are focused on right now, it's not, hey, inflation is going to be a runaway. It's you have a consensus moving further and further toward there's going to be a significant economic slowdown. There's going to be a recession. How bad is it going to be? Who's going to be hit? It's not that everyone panicked over the inflation print. It was that you had the inflation print. The Fed did something weird. And that is unsettling. And that's the biggest thing. And, and I mentioned gold. 
you know, if you look at the way that gold has behaved in the last few days, you know, after the Fed came out yesterday and announced the 75 basis point hike, gold has been up, which under traditional thinking, you know, if they're going to be more aggressive in hiking interest rates, why would gold be up? Shouldn't it be down? Well, I don't know. I think what we've talked about in the past is that gold is not really an inflation play. It's a play on uncertainty and fear and uh, uh, instability in the system. And that's a little scary data point showing that Mr. Market is getting more concerned about those things. Well, I think to your point, there's no committee of gold that sets a gold price or decides to raise gold interest rates or raise gold mining rates. I mean, there's just, there's gold and there's a finite amount and you're sort of able to price it. I'll, I'll push back a little bit and play devil's advocate in that um, the CPI print was not that different, I guess, than than previous prints and, and the headline figures were not that scary, but energy is way up. I mean, energy prices, you know, mo- uh, year on year, we're up o- about 35%. Um, and it feels like we're in a little because it feels like we're in a little bit of scary, scary territory there because you've got the shutdown at the Freeport LNG facility in Texas, which is, you know, a fifth of U.S. LNG exports. And Europe's been depending on that. You've got the U.S. basically waving the white flag on oil and saying we got to go hang out with the Saudis again, even though Biden didn't even want to talk to Mohammed bin Salman even a year ago. Uh, but, you know, they've sort of shelved the Iran nuclear deal. We're going to go talk to the Saudis. We need a lot more oil pumping, things like that. It, it seems like there's still a lot of fear when it comes to energy and not a lot of answers when it comes to where energy production is going to come from. And I wonder what 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 that part of the CPI, how you feel about that part of the CPI, because the energy thing does look a little bit like a runaway freight train right now. Well, I think there's two things in there. Um my impression, and maybe this is completely wrong, is that consumers and non-professional news readers are more focused on energy and financial market participants are more focused on what's going to happen after the rising energy prices uh, crimp consumers' pocketbooks. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, energy has been a consensus trade for many months. Everyone is sort of aware of what's happening with the fuel prices and gasoline prices going over five dollars, you know, nationally. Um, I don't know if the panic that you see in the media and sort of in the political sphere really markets usually anticipate that. Um, And maybe there was some surprising aspect to that accelerating a little bit more in the recent period. But I I just doubt that. I, I don't think that's what people are. I don't think that's what Mr. Market is freaking out about, per se. Um, the other, uh, the other element, which I think is worth um, worth noting on the on the energy uh, and inflation rate. I'm sorry, uh, interest rate surprise is, you know, when the Fed is is setting things up heading into a meeting. I mean, they have a whole array of variables and potential outcomes. And the idea is that they're going to very methodically lay out, okay, you know, within this cone of possible outcomes, here's what we're likely to do. So yeah, rising energy prices between 15 days ago and when the quiet period ended and when they 
talk to the Wall Street Journal, maybe that accelerated a little bit faster than they thought. But I think the key is that's, is it such a shock that energy prices went up a lot? Like that should be in their range of possibilities that they're already taking into account. It's not like a September 11th event where something just comes completely out of nowhere. It's, that's not what we experienced. This was within the current range of known unknowns. Yeah, you had a squiggle higher in one of the key variables, but really they're not taking that into account when they're saying it's going to be 50 basis points and then, you know, 75. So yeah, I mean, I see what you're saying. And I think to a certain extent that is true, um, that it was shocking a little bit, but still, you know, they should have been able to handle this and they kind of dropped the ball. Yeah. The the other question I guess I that that raises in my mind is that like let's say you really are panicking. Let's say you you see the CPI print. Let's say they see something in there they don't like and that they want to nip in the bud. Is another 25 basis points really going to do it? Like if you really want to put the hammer down and you want to to engineer some I mean I guess you have to guard against a complete and total crash landing or whatever the euphemism is there. But you know, going from 50 to 75 basis points to your point, that's probably not actually going to affect that much. That 25 basis point increase isn't going to actually do anything fundamentally. If you're really scared and panicking about something, you would think that you would go 100 or 150 or 200, you know, something to really signal that you're concerned rather than kind of, oh, we, we said this one thing and now we're just going to tweak it slightly and tell the Wall Street Journal about it. Yeah, but it's not just about this meeting, right? whatever you do in this meeting, you're setting expectations for how that's going to reverberate in the next three or four meetings. So 25 basis points might not seem like a lot now, but when you consider, okay, now we should expect an extra 25 basis points at each of the next three meetings, that's how you get the 10-year bond yield going from 2.9% to you know, 3.5% in a hot second. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, yeah. It's sort of like a growth stock. Like people wonder about this all the time. You have a high growing company and they have a small revenue miss compared to expectations or compared to earnings and the stock drops 40%. And and people say, well, oh my God, it was such a small miss. Well, the reason is because if you extrapolate that, that flight path just a little bit lower, you change the angle, then, you know, if you go out into the future, that's a big difference if that makes sense, that visualization I'm trying to create. Yeah, no, for sure. All right, well, I mean, so why why are you feeling more optimistic? What are you seeing? And we talked about this a little last week, but what are the things that are, are making you feel like um, that, that we might get a rally at some point or that this is a little bit overstated? Well, in the first place, the economy is fundamentally pretty good. And I think that's easy to forget when you're focused on inflation, you're focused on energy prices. And that's not to say that energy prices couldn't accelerate because of some spike or some you know unforeseen event, like just in Europe uh, in the last two days with this Russia Nord Stream issue, that's been a huge factor. Um, so you, you do have the, you know, the potential for shocks like that. But if you look at consumers' balance sheets, if you look at businesses' balance sheets, um, less so business than consumer, they're in pretty good shape uh, in the first place. Um, and there's one data point that I think is really striking to me, which is 
So the sentiment data is coming out and the survey data are coming out uh, for each of the regional Federal Reserve banks. And they go to businesses in the district and say, how are you feeling, blah, blah, blah. And of course, right now, all the businesses in the district are saying, we're feeling terrible. And it's, you know, it's not good. And those sentiment indices are hitting, you know, decade lows back to uh, March 2020 COVID uh, emergence kind of situation. And yet, if you look at the expectations for capital expenditures, the expectations for employment, um, they're not really rolling over that much, which I think is really encouraging. And we've talked about this recently, how a lot of people are taking the 2002 model or the 2009 model and trying to apply it here. And I don't think that's valid because what you saw in you know, the last few cycles was just like you had just-in-time inventory, everyone assumed you had just-in-time labor. And, mm. you know, hey, things are starting to roll over. Let's just fire a thousand people. We can always hire them back. Um, and I think these labor shortages that you're experiencing in the last few years are sort of changing that mindset. Um, and this is a thesis that I'm still testing, and I'm not sure if it holds up to the data. But so far, it's kind of interesting that corporate margins would be getting squeezed like they are, and businesses would be expecting such a rollover in the economy. And yet you're not seeing layoffs really accelerate that much, except for a few, you know, areas of tech and places that have been particularly hard hit, residential real estate brokers, that kind of thing. Um, but for the core part of the economy, they're holding on to their workers. And that's a big change from what you saw before, and probably a pretty positive one. Um, on the CapEx side, CapEx is capital expenditures. Sorry if I'm using lingo here. But basically, long-term fixed investment that businesses are making um, for, for the future. Um, so CapEx has held up remarkably well. And I think that speaks to another aspect of why you should be pretty positive about the economy. Now, I'm not saying about stocks, per se, and we'll get to that. Um, but on the economy, the fact that CapEx is holding up, that investment is holding up fairly well, I think speaks to the notion that businesses realize that there's there's a big investment hurdle that needs to be overcome. And, you know, depending on which industry you're talking about, you just look anecdotally. Um, retailers are investing heavily in omni-channel capabilities and e-commerce. Uh, general purpose businesses of all kinds are investing in cloud computing capabilities, in hybrid cloud, in IT, and a lot of the things that are viewed increasingly as table stakes. Um, and that's really encouraging. Um, it's not necessarily good for businesses' profit margins, but it's good for the economy. So, you know, if you get, if you have this view that we're going to head into, you know, another like great recession type scenario, I think that's very unlikely. Yeah, it's it's funny, and this has been one of the hardest things for me as I as I get more involved with thinking about markets and trying to tie especially geopolitical developments to them because um, I mean, so often markets have nothing to do with reality. Like the fact that markets boomed after that, the March, April, 2020 COVID spike, even while we weren't sure what was going to happen with the economy and how much things were slowed down. I mean, but stocks to your point and all these things 
went to the moon. Now it's sort of a nice symmetry where you say, if you actually look at the fundamentals of the economy, yes, there are some problems, but it's not that scary. But to your point, markets are, are thinking about something else or something else seems to be driving them. I wonder if, um, if I might also ask, or at least put to you that, um, I agree with you that the dot-com comparisons and the 2008, nine comparisons, those feel too easy and, and too cheap. It seems to me that the aspect of that, though, that is operative is what's happening in crypto, um, that a lot of especially young retail investors went in on crypto, bought high, kind of bought all the hype, and that all those people are getting their faces ripped off. And obviously, there's somebody on the other side of that trade, probably. But it does feel to me like that corner of the market where people got entranced by this whole sector that really hasn't even shaken out yet, and we're not even sure who the winners and losers are going to be that that may be driving at least some of the narrative because it almost felt like crypto got mainstream enough for even the Wall Street Journal to start covering it. And then, boom, suddenly, um, you know, the the bottom falls out and people are looking around at each other, asking if, if how, how much this is going to go and talking about whether there there's other risk and what's tied to this and things like that. Do you think that's fair or is, or is even that, you think, not a, an accurate comparison to those previous models? No, I think it's a great comparison to the previous models. Crypto is what the dot-coms were 22 years ago. I think that's the best way to think about it. Um, and it's funny. So three years ago or so, um, I, I don't personally have a deep knowledge base in crypto beyond kind of the, the generalist's understanding. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of deliberate because th three years ago, my, uh, my good friend and fund manager, Awesome Gaffar at AG Capital, who I meet with regularly, he said, well, are you studying up on crypto to really, you know, get deeply into this? And I said to him, I said, you know, frankly, it's, it's, there's so much going on. It's a massive amount of work to just try to understand it all. And my expectation at the time was this is a bubble. 99.9% .9 of this is going to be zeros and 0.1% of it is going to emerge to be something fundamentally very useful. Um, and three or four years from now, I'll start to study because it's really not worth my time right now because I'll never be able to pick out what's what. Um, and I think that's sort of playing out. And that's still my view of what's happened is you had all of the hucksters come in and, you know, the new age people who don't really know what they're doing, stealing money uh, in all sorts of schemes. And that's all just washing away now. Um, and, and you didn't have to, you didn't have to, you know, be a genius to see that that's what was going to happen. And, and this is another thing not to go off on a little tangent, but bubbles are rational. Um, and I think people forget this, like people like to look back and say, how could people have been so stupid to have invested in crypto or dot coms or tulips or whatever it is. And I think that's a misunderstanding of how bubbles work because, you know, there's this uh, academic named Didier Sornet, who's a French mathematician, and he, he studies kind of social phenomena and, and things like that. And he wrote this wonderful book called Why Stock Markets Crash, which isn't a great title for it because it's really about bubbles. And a big discussion of the book is about rational bubbles. Why do people participate in bubbles? They're rational to do so because you have the opportunity to make a fortune from, from doing nothing. Yeah. Uh, like to put it simply, like that's not the mathematical explanation. And there's a very 
elegant way to explain it in expected value terms and things like that. But that's, you know, why bubbles form, why they go exponential, and then why they implode is because of those incentives are created. So these people who all invested heavily in crypto, they didn't believe it, or most of them didn't believe it. They're rational to do so. And it's a, it's it's something that we've seen many times or we're going to see again. It doesn't mean these people are are stupid. It means they're very, you know, risk-taking and, and you know, uh, anyway, I'm going off on a tangent, but I, I just no. don't want to, I don't want to crap all over people who were into crypto and, and that sort of thing, because it's a very natural um, progression. Well, no, but, but I, even like, I mean, I remember a, a cousin of mine calling me up one day and being like, yo, man, you got to buy this Dogecoin thing. And I remember my sister calling me up one day, my sister who does not listen to this podcast, wouldn't get through five minutes of this podcast, doesn't care about markets, doesn't follow markets, anything like that, but called me up one day and was like, hey, Jacob, how do I buy this Bitcoin stuff? And I'm sort of like, wow, it's gotten all the way out to you. But to your point, like these people don't know what decentralized finance is or what blockchain is or what all of these sort what smart contracts mean, actually. And like, you know, getting rid of all the mid the middle um, actors that charge these percentage fees like they don't see that vision of, of what is, I think, behind the real sort of um, crypto converts, right? It, I think exactly to your point, it was just everybody saw that there was so much money in the system and there sort of had to be because of COVID. You had to make sure the economy didn't collapse. I think people blame the Fed now for for what they did in March, April 2020. I remember how scary it was. We didn't know what this virus was. M maybe in hindsight, you would do things different, but it's hard to argue that you should have done it differently that way. But when there's that much free money in the system and interest rates are that low for that long, like to your point, like there are going to be bubbles because people are making money everywhere and people want to participate in that money making. So um, that the underlying technology behind crypto um, is probably probably something is going to come of that. And we still haven't had the real sort of clash between governments and cryptocurrencies and, and how that's all going to shake out too. So I, I agree with you. I think there's a long way to go before we kind of know where cryptos where crypto is going to go. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a kernel of great value in there somewhere in this morass of shit, essentially. <laughs> and at, at some point, that kernel is going to sprout in the shit and it's going to grow into something very, very interesting. Um, pardon my life. Are we allowed to, to, to use language like that on our podcast? Absolutely. I, oh, I, right. I intentionally <laughs> labeled this pod. I, every time I open up this podcast page, it, it says explicit. I feel like such a badass. It really helps me. Uh, feel yeah. We should make an effort to be more explicit then. I, um, I always, you know, I always tell guests on the podcast, like, hey, it's it's like we're having a beer. The microphones are just on. So just curse if you want. Don't curse if you don't want. It's it's literally up to everyone. But um, yeah, I mean, if, if you want to just if you want to get to like Deadwood level cursing, we can do that, too. I'm, I'm all. In. Well, you know, I'm usually a very classy guy, so I don't uh, I don't think that's my M.O. Um but yeah, I mean, the, the takeaway on crypto is that's a good analogy, the 2000.com uh, kind of analogy. I think that really does apply to crypto. And, and by the way, not to give, uh, just to give another shout out, the person that I'm relying on to uh, sort of navigate me through the world of crypto, who I think is just so smart and interesting and doing great things, is Eric Sue, um, uh, who's here in, in Cambridge, actually right down the street from us. Uh, and he uh, is he has a fund called Crypto Shire. Um, but Eric is a uh, 
is a friend and and of all people, you know, on top of what's going on and what has value and what doesn't. Um, and, you know, right now, Eric's official proclamation is he is struggling to find anything that's interesting because it's still, you know, 99%, 99.9% garbage. So yeah. for anyone interested in crypto, we'll keep you posted when, when that changes. Yeah. Um, no, but the tech thing is, is, a, is a very different scenario, though. So if crypto is the analogy, tech is in a very different place. And crypto, frankly, is too small to matter that much. Um, you had some people who put money in there and, and lost their savings and that sort of thing. But you also had huge fortunes being made. And you had a lot of free money going out to people as well from the government, which is still happening. Um, so I don't think from an economy-wise standpoint, it's that meaningful. Um, tech is very meaningful. Um, and the comparisons of today's tech industry to 2000, even though on the surface they may seem superficially similar, I think are just completely wrong. And it ignores the time that's elapsed between then and now. So yeah, it's it's been interesting because I feel like when I you know when we first met back in 2020, you were while everybody was buying up tech and tech was going to the moon as as we talked about in 2020, you were always like, no, nah, like this is this is too fast, this is too much, and just to to listen and watch the way you have flipped in the last couple of weeks and be like, all right, now, now it's starting to get interesting to me because those values are coming down and these are really important companies and they are critical to economies worldwide. Like they're not going anywhere. Google's not going to collapse tomorrow. It's going to be just as important, if not more important, five, 10 years from now. So, No, it's not going to collapse. And, and in August of 2020, we did a special event for clients and friends that was basically why we think big tech is peaked and we were a year too early but you know i still think that that thesis is valid and it uh, informs what we're doing today because google's not going away microsoft is not going away but the notion you know at the time don't get me started on my you, you know 1920s utilities uh little hobby horse here but you, you started the taps flowing <laughs> just stop me when i start getting too boring um but the way to think about big tech companies as everyone on the cognitive investments team is sick to death of freaking hearing by now is like 1920s utilities companies because then as now you had this general purpose technology that was emerging that was spreading it was in sort of the you know, middle innings of getting spread out and being used in manufacturing and the kind of rolled up, consolidated, oligopolistic um, electric utilities were the big tech companies of the day. And they had margins that were like a Google. So if you look at Consolidated Edison, which was the most famous one, um, you know, based in Chicago, uh, their operating margins in 1927 were 24%. And that's what Google does. I mean, these were extraordinarily profitable and cash flowing businesses, and people thought they were going to take over the world. And if you look, you know, everyone knows about the 1920s stock bubble and, you know, uh, Radio Core of America and, and those sorts of things. The best performing group were electric utilities. And, you know, it was viewed as a can't lose bet because they were recognized to be monopolies in their local markets or their regional markets. They were recognized to be extremely profitable 
And it was recognized that electricity usage was going to basically grow to the moon. And that last thing was absolutely true. And the, the, fir and the first thing was absolutely true. And what happened was not what everyone expected. It was these guys got too big and they, their returns collapsed over the years. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what you're starting to see. Like, look at what Facebook has done, which they recently pivoted on, where they said, okay, well, we're going to spend, you know, untold billions of dollars building this speculative metaverse world because we're going to bet the company on this. That's the sort of things that the electric utilities had to do, because who's going to build out the infrastructure for electricity usage to go up a hundredfold? The utilities were the ones who did it. And what's the marginal return on capital on that? It was pretty damn bad. And I think that's what you're starting to see in the big tech companies today. Um, and especially as government attention continues and, and, you know, some of the balkanization issues that we've talked about from a geopolitical standpoint with barriers coming up. Um, none of those things are good. Like the days of Google just minting money, um, I, I think are, are, are past. Yeah, and it doesn't mean they're growing away. No, Go they're going to become a boring company. It's, it's not going to be the kind of high growth stuff. They're going to be around. They're going to be blue chippers, but it's not going to be 10, 20 X if you buy into it. Yeah, uh, that's why they're called utilities. They're boring. <laughs> utilities used to not be. We don't used to associate that word with boring. Now, utilities are the most boring stocks on Earth. Like who owns utility stocks? Grandmas own utility stocks. Uh, yeah, it, it'll be it'll be fun when we get that place with whatever they're going to call information technology, whatever they're going to call those those yeah. companies. I'm, but I think it's coming because I think there are other problems, whether it's the energy transition we're talking about or whether it's um, you know the future the future of agriculture, shipping. Like there there are lots of other problems that need solutions that that don't don't require those tech companies that have been kind of the sure bet. Um, before we turn to kind of sort of, you know, some advice about how to think about this and how to get through this particular market um, condition. Um, I thought we'd just talk about geopolitics briefly. Um, there, there were two main things on my list. And the first actually dovetails, we haven't talked about it yet, and dovetails with something you and I talk about a lot. Um, but it also goes to show you that, um, you know, there are some weeks where I, I feel like geopolitics eats everything, where it's all at the political level. And if you understand politics, you'll understand what's going on. Even in the stuff that's geopolitical this week, it's markets. Markets has eaten everything, and it's actually the thing shaping geopolitics. And I thought this was really on display in the European Union, because sort of like the Federal Reserve, you had the European Central Bank, which last week said it was going to raise interest rates, come out this week and hold an emergency meeting. And because um, bond yields and sort of peripheral European countries are increasing, everybody's really worried about Italy. The 10-year bond in Italy rose above 4% earlier in the week. And the ECB has this emergency meeting and then says, okay, like we're going to actually um, take some of these stimulus programs that we were going to wind down. We're going to filter that over here to some of these peripheral countries. And don't worry, we're going to create a mechanism to protect Italy and Spain and all these peripheral European countries with bad debt. We don't know what the mechanism is yet, but there's going to be a mechanism kind of don't worry. And the market actually somehow responded somewhat favorably to that. Like yields started creeping down a little bit after that. Uh, but it strikes me that there's a similar similar kind of move there where the ECB is holding this emergency meeting um, and you know the Fed is doing stuff out of its normal character and that's the exact sort of stuff that markets don't like. The reason it's geopolitical though is because I mean Spain, Portugal, no offense to y'all, but like y'all are not the main uh, 
uh, entree here. It's really about Italy because Italy has debt to GDP of 150%. People have been calling for the crash of the Italian banking sector for literally 10 years. When I was writing at GPF, I spent God knows how long looking at Italian bank balance sheets and trying to figure out what the heck, how to express that in in a thousand words that our readers could actually understand. Um, And to me, it, it really is kind of a do or die moment again here for the European Union because either the Germans and the Frugals are going to foot the bill for these peripheral European countries and figure out a way to prevent those yields from skyrocketing and preventing some kind of collapse. Um, or if, if they do the Greek thing, if we start hearing the word austerity again out of Europe, um, well, then, then first of all, you and I are wrong about the European Union and we might need to change some things internally. But I think that would be a very sort of negative sign in general. So I wonder if you have anything to say about that. But I, that really struck me that we've got this this move in markets that is now presenting the European Union with a very distinct geopolitical choice. And if they make the wrong choice here, um, you know, it's not Grexit we're going to be talking about. We're talking about the third largest economy in the European Union potentially causing a lot of havoc. Yeah, but I think they've already made the choice and they made that clear in 2012 when Mario Draghi, who's now the prime minister of Italy, said, we're going to do whatever it takes. And that was the circuit breaker in that whole narrative, I think. And if you look at what happened last week, I mean, look, they don't even have to say what it is now. All they have to do is say, hey, guys, like, yeah, the charter may say X, Y, and Z, but like, we're not going to allow anything undesired to happen. Um, And unless you, you think that that will is going away. See, the, the, the way I view it, and, and tell me if you disagree with this, is the Fed and the ECB are almost passing in opposite directions because the Fed is coming from a place of unquestioned stability, you know, the anchor of the developed world, the anchor of the global financial system. And just like, you know, the US Supreme Court, you know, all of a sudden people are questioning institutions in a way they've never done before in the United States. And that's one dynamic that's playing out. And that's part of this multipolarity theme that, you know, we've discussed at length. Um, And in the other direction, you have the ECB, which 10 years ago, people were much less certain about. You know, there were many theses that, you know, the Germans are going to enforce austerity and, you know, they're going to allow Greece to do X, Y, Z. And as I said, in 2012, Mario Draghi, like whatever, like this is an existential issue for us. And I just find it so hard to believe that between 2012 and today, that existential issue hasn't become more clear and stark. Um, And the notion that you're going to have talk of austerity or disunity, yeah, there will be, you know, jaw jaw around that for domestic audiences and that but when it comes down to it do you really think that they're going to allow meaningful fragmentation i i i I don't and i don't think anything they've said or done recently is a data point against that What, what do you think i i think the only thing to say there is that i think that's true and that's my view the counterfactual though is Look what they did to Greece after Mario Draghi said, we'll do whatever it takes. So, and they probably, you know, there's probably a double standard there too. Like you can, you can deal with Greece in a way that you really can't deal with Italy just because of the level of exposure when it came to Italy. But like Greece, 
like they sat, they really took Greece out behind the woodshed and said, you're going to take the worst of this. Nobody's going to bail you out. You're going to be paying debt back until 2060. Like they had the referendum uh, in Greece. Greece didn't want to do it. They didn't want the deal. And the government was elected saying that they weren't going to take the deal. And then at the last moment did because they knew it would be a disaster if they couldn't otherwise. Um, and, you know, uh, there, there have been books about that particular moment. But you did back then have a Germany that was very recalcitrant about wanting to put um, you know, German credit and German capital on the line to save the European Union. And I think, I think things have changed since COVID. I, I think that the pandemic emergency program and, and the things that the EU has done in the last two or three years is why this is different. If we were dealing with the same European Union of 2012 right now, and Italy was having these problems, I don't know how optimistic I would be. So I agree with you on the take. I would just say we do have that data point of Greece of watching the European Union um, really shoot itself in the foot. And I guess Greece is the foot in this metaphor. Apologies to the Greeks who are listening. I, I think y'all are great. It's, I, I didn't do it. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's the data point to be concerned about. I don't think it's the most, I don't think it's even close to the most likely one. I think it's a fairly small possibility, but that's in their DNA. It's not like they haven't done this to a country before that had these types of problems. Oh, sure. And I wouldn't be surprised if they did it again. Um, you know, if you have massive investment programs in peripheral countries or bailout style programs or something to bring them up, you know, because the other thing that about Mario Draghi, for example, is if you go back and you read when he was the ECB president, what he said, you know, he's viewed as oh the dove of doves. But what he said before every ECB statement, before every prepared speech, which no one knows because no one actually reads these things. They just read the summaries. <laughs> is he said every time we need to have peripheral European countries reform their fiscal systems uh, to make them more competitive and more stable. Otherwise, this is not going to work long term. Um, so I don't think that's in inconsistent with the um, project of bringing everyone closer together. Um, and I, I wouldn't be that surprised if something like that happened. And I don't think that's bad necessarily from the EU level. I think what financial markets are worried about is spreads exploding. Yeah. And, and the, you know, the assumption, like financial markets freak out when they assume something and then that assumption gets surprised or blown up unexpectedly. And what happened in 2010, 2011, 2012, you know, was prior to the 2000 eight financial crisis, there was this assumption that all European debt, sovereign debt, was essentially backstopped by the ECB. And the spreads are going to always remain compressed. And you know, you can treat it effectively the same. And then after the crisis, when that assumption proved, oh, my God, that's not correct anymore. That's when markets freaked out. And even though we're seeing spreads widen here, um, I don't, I don't like, th and that's what Draghi came in. That's what he effectively did by saying whatever it takes. And no matter what's going on with spreads now, that assumption is still very valid. Um, and I think they've understood that they can't mess with that assumption because that's the disaster scenario is if Italian yields, you know, blow out to 8% and there's no plausible backstop to say, hey, we're going to bring these down. That's when everything falls apart. But like austerity programs, 
you know, interfering in national economic policy in exchange for providing European level support. That's, it's all, that's, that's very plausible. That could happen. And it's not necessarily such a bad thing. No, it's, it's just a fine line. Like, like if it's to get the fiscal reforms to keep everyone together, that's fine. I mean, Greece was going to crash out. Like if you get to the point where you're pushing a country like Greece to where the majority of voters don't want to take the bailout package. And I mean, Italy has currents of that anti EU, that Euroskeptic stuff. I mean, Salvini's been waiting there in the wings, just wanting his chance and never getting it. Um, but you know, there are forces in Italy that would love to take political advantage of a moment like that. So I agree with you. Like there's a healthy amount of fiscal reform that will probably come from this, but you do have to thread the needle a little bit. If you push too far, um, like you say, you could shake things up a little bit in a way that starts to produce political realities that are not conducive to the things that need to happen. Because if you get a Greece-style situation in Italy, it's very, very hard to sweep that under the table. I don't think that's going to go away the same way the Greek crisis kind of did. Yeah, but they're very different situations too. Because Greece was effectively, I, I don't want to say this, but like a failed state in many ways. The Greek system just did not function. Yeah, well, the, the, the southern Italian system doesn't function either. Like southern Italy is basically Greece. It just has a northern top of the boot to, to make up for the failed state part. Oh, sure. And, you know, certain regions of the United States are, are failing economically. Um, but overall, Italy has a net investment position that's, that's pretty strong. Um, last I looked, they have are running a primary fiscal surplus. It's just the burden of interest rate interest payments that pushes them into a deficit, which suggests that they have fundamentally like there's they, they may need a restructuring, but it's not like think of it as a business. It's a business that may need to be recapitalized, but it doesn't need to be liquidated and you know have the private equity guys come in and fire everybody and kick some asses. Like, I don't think that's the situation in Italy nearly the way it was in Greece. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, The last thing that was on my mind geopolitically is actually very much US oriented and I haven't really done a lot of work on it and maybe we'll talk about it more next week. I just, you hear the steady drumbeat of how, you know, the Southwest is running out of water and, you know, dams are low and, and you have to ration water. But there were some pretty stark comments from federal officials this week about just how bad um, drought is in the Southwest, and especially along the Colorado River's reservoirs, where, I mean, you basically have, I think it's both, um, I think it's at Lake Mead, and what's the other one? Is that the Hoover Dam? I'm, I'm forgetting now the exact ones. I'm sorry. So it's, it's Lake Mead and Lake Powell are at 28 and 27% of capacity. Uh, in comparison. And the Hoover Dam is something like 200 feet away from just not being able to let water pass through it. And you had some federal officials saying, look, the states that are in this region need to recalibrate how much water they're taking from the Colorado River in the next 60 days. And if they don't, the federal government has the power to just do it unilaterally. So all of you state officials get together because we're watching this and this is really a catastrophic kind of event. Um, You put that together with the crazy flooding in, in Yellowstone. I don't know if you saw the videos of you know entire bridges and roads being washed out in Yellowstone National Park because of the flooding there. It's 105 in New Orleans right now, a heat index you know, in, in June. We expect that in August. We don't expect that in June. We're not even talking about hurricane season, which isn't even here in force. Um, just, it, I mean, the, the water thing really jumps out at me and probably deserves um, fuller treatment. 
Um, and I'm and I'm not to say that this isn't happening in other parts of the world, but it just feels like a particularly bad week from a U.S. climate perspective. And th- those water issues on the Colorado River is starting to, it, it almost feels like the frog that is in the boiling water. I, I wonder if we're starting to get a simmer in the pot because the, the things that those federal officials were talking about um, scared me a little bit. And it, it's also, I think, telling that you can only find the articles about this stuff in the local papers. Like it's in the Colorado newspaper or it's in the Los Angeles times or things like that. It's still not reaching the front page of the New York times because they're obsessed about 25 basis points. So I, I would feel remiss if I didn't just say, I don't have a full take or haven't even thought that seriously about it. Um, but I read those headlines and I looked a little bit deeper and, uh, that it was a little frightening. Yeah. I think just to try to tie that to, investing in a, in a broader way. I think this is illustrating the theme which we've talked about, which is capacity in some ways. So what I mean is if you run your business in a way that depends on conditions being perfect or close to perfect, and conditions are perfect 97% of the time, and you don't build out the buffer to handle the 3%, you're going to die when the 3% outcome emerges. And I think this is a good example of that because, you know, whether you're building a home or a housing development in Arizona and it's dependent on certain water conditions or whether you have a business that's dependent on, you know, not having floods come down and, and wash away your manufacturing facility. And, you know, maybe it's a 75 year flood, but once every 75 years, you're blown up and out of business. And I think that's, you know, this broader theme of building out capacity for good times and not building in the buffer to handle the inevitable yet infrequent fluctuations, that's the incentive that most, especially publicly traded businesses have. Like if you're a public CEO, you're going to say, oh, we're going to, you know, we're going to build two factories because, you know, in case one goes down, which we expect to happen every 15 years, it would be catastrophic. So we want to have this, no, you're never going to say that. You get fired. No one, no one is that long term. Um, but now you're sort of forced to be in a way that you weren't before as recognition of these issues emerges. Um, you know, and, and there's all sorts of these things. It's not just weather uh, or supply chain bottlenecks. It's, you know, <laughs> I don't want to get on my other uh, my other hobby horses that everyone's sick of hearing, but you know, what about? Yeah, I, I I think your wife Julia would not be happy with me if I if I allowed you to get on two hobby horses in one podcast. Yeah. I'd probably be getting some angry f- French hate mail at that point. I think I have a one hobby horse limit. <laughs> well, on on that note, let's just close by. Um, you sent a note out to CI clients this week that um, I thought was really good and really exceptional. I thought was, um, you know, most of the times I'm not very. Um, complimentary of things that I describe as sober. But in this case, I thought it was it was sober in a good way because um, you were sort of talking about the things that CI does differently and why the, the market environment that has everyone freaking out right now, um, why the way that CI does things differently actually has allowed us to buffer some of those losses and, and sort of explain some of the ways that we're disrupting the way the traditional financial advisors work. So I just said I wasn't going to let you get on the second hobby horse because I wanted you to close by just maybe just sharing one or two highlights from that note that we sent to clients to our listeners so they can get a taste of kind of the, you know, we talk a lot here about abstract things 
Um, but you know, what, what, what were some of the practical things that allowed us to be better prepared for what's happening and how we're managing things going forward? Yeah. Um, there were really two purposes in writing that. Um, the first was to reassure our clients because, you know, as I put in the thing, you know, the front page of NewYorkTimes.com right now has a big infographic on the history of bear markets and how to protect yourself. And that's never a good sign. You know, clients are probably a little bit on edge when uh, that's the, the environment. Um, so it was, it was to do that and, and, and reassure them that we were doing relatively really quite well and it protected them very well. Um, but really the bigger purpose in writing that, as you say, is to emphasize and highlight that um, what we do is not always perfect, but it works. And the philosophy that we take, like we're here talking about what's going on, trying to anticipate doing deep research. And, and you don't even like the listeners see us talking, but they don't even know, like we have a whole team, like, you know, Sean has spent all week with his head down in a very specific project about something in Japan, for example. Um, that sort of research, that sort of thinking, that sort of active uh, approach to investing, it, it's, it works. And um, the point is, you know, I, and I, I was a little bit snarky in the email, snarky by my standards. Mm -hmm. um, and I said, you know, right about now, you're going to be getting these emails from all of the traditional financial advisors and the brokerage houses and that. And it's always the same thing. It's a very slickly produced video from, you know, the chief investment officer and he's got a suit and he's, you know, in an office scenario and he's saying, you know, we just want to you know, reassure you that bear markets are natural and these things are completely impossible to predict. It's like a hurricane and, you know, inflation and the war who would have, you know, who would have seen any of this coming? And, you know, that's, that's the model that's the dominant model is passivity and i told you to stop me if i start crapping on the the traditional financial sector financial sector too much but it gets my blood in a, a bit of a boil um, but, but the model is to do nothing literally to to put your assets in some prearranged you know asset allocation and and not do anything not think and just intuitively does that make sense um, does that seem like the way to make wise investment decisions to build your wealth is just not think about anything? Um, I don't think so. And it's proving to not work very well. And their business model is geared towards not doing anything because it's hard and expensive to think and be active. And it takes not to, you know, be too melodramatic. It takes some guts to go out there and say, hey, we think this is likely to happen. This is different from what everyone else thinks, but we think it's likely to happen. And that's how you do better. You have to do something different from what everyone else is doing by definition, because you need to be able to step in when everyone's panicking. Right now, for example, I'm fairly bullish at the moment. That seems crazy. You know, just like in August 2020, when we came out and said, hey, you know, big tech is not going to go up forever. It's probably peaked for a very long time. At that point, that seemed crazy. 
or you know when we were bullish on energy stocks uh, a year and a half ago when the yep. whole narrative was oh electric cars are going to eliminate oil demand you know in a secular fashion and it's just permanent oversupply and it's just going to be a disaster it's hard to even remember what that was like because the narrative has changed so much since then but that's not impossible to do it just requires you know putting in place the processes and the people to do them and i think that's what we do successfully and and we've done successfully for a long time is to be thoughtful, be long-term, um, put in place plans that are durable, but active. And um, the passive approach is not gonna cut it anymore. And you know, I said to the clients, like, if you get these emails from the broker saying, this was impossible to predict, and even though I just lost 20% of your money, and if you were in a 60-40, you know, stock bond, uh, you know, the traditional classic allocation, you've lost 20% of your money this year. That's extraordinary. That's supposed to be a conservative allocation. 20%, that's a huge drawdown for a conservative investor. And if you're getting emails saying, hey, you know, couldn't have seen it coming, uh, that's nonsense. Absolute nonsense. So that's, I guess... The broader message and i don't know if i'm covering all the main bases because i'm getting all heated here but no oh, yeah uh, the audience can't see how red your face is getting but i like it you're certainly not dressed slickly in a suit i'm pretty sure you don't actually even own a suit or at least not one that would be worth wearing in a, in a slick boardroom um but no so we'll leave it at that i mean i you know a lot of times we're going to be talking about geopolitics on this podcast but i really felt this week was uh it, it was important to talk about markets this week because I think it's on everybody's mind. And I, you know, you don't, we don't always have an opportunity to hit the thing that is on everybody's mind right now with a differentiated take. But I think we do have some very differentiated, differentiated ideas and thinking about this stuff. And I think the, the, the takeaway message to the, the listeners is, you know, the name of this podcast is Cognitive Dissidence. It's, uh, we liked that pun because we want you to be thoughtful. We want you to listen to this and tell us how wrong we are and write to us and tell us how wrong we are because that makes us smarter too. Maybe you'll see something uh, that we didn't see too, but it's that constant process that hopefully allows us to develop insights that we can then translate into good things. So with that, uh, no more hobby horses and Rob and I will be back with you next week. In the meantime, uh, take care and we will see you out there. Thank you so much for listening to the Cognitive Dissidents podcast brought to you by Cognitive Investments. If you are interested in learning more about Cognitive Investments, you can check us out online at cognitive.investments. That's cognitive.investments. Uh, you can also write to me directly if you want at jacob at cognitive.investments. Cheers, and we'll see you out there. The views expressed in this commentary are subject to change based on market and other conditions. This podcast may contain certain statements that may be deemed forward-looking statements. Please note that any such statements are not guarantees of any future performance, and actual results or developments may differ materially from those projected. Any projections, market outlooks, or estimates are based upon certain assumptions and should not be construed as indicative of actual events that will occur.